Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A bill to codify abortion rights has failed in the Senate. But some Democrats are proposing to change the rules to overcome Republican opposition. What could be coming? And House Republicans today took issue with the Biden administration's border policies, calling them a display of false compassion. They were joined by experts who have direct experience at the southern border. And we know, here's a fact that you will not hear from this administration. We know there are very bad people among the 750,000. Did I say they were all bad? No. Democrats in the House say staffers need to unionize so lower and middle income people can afford to live in Washington. Some say it's Congress's own fault. James O'Keefe from Project Veritas and investigative journalist Cheryl Atkinson tell lawmakers their experience of being targeted by federal agents for their journalistic work. With secret surveillance and subpoenas against then Fox News reporter James Rosen and 20 Associated Press reporters, and they secretly intruded upon and remotely monitored my computers and devices and those of my family while I worked at CBS News. The House of Representatives passes a $40 billion package for Ukraine. But some Republicans are raising questions about the aid, what repercussions it will have on Americans, and where the U.S. involvement in the war is heading. In the wake of the bombshell leak of Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion seeking to overturn Roe v. Wade, Senate Democrats are trying to advance a bill that would codify abortion rights into federal law, essentially overruling the state's laws. But the proposal failed to pass the Senate today, as was expected. Here's Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. So I'm glad. Glad the Senate will vote today. We will stand with the American people, stand with innocent life, and block the Democrats' extreme bill. While Democrats were fighting for its passage, the bill, titled the Women's Health Protection Act, was all but certain to fail in the Senate. This is because Democrats did not have the 60 votes needed to overcome a Republican filibuster. That said, some Democrats are now calling for an end to the filibuster rule or arguing that there should be an exception in order to overcome Republicans blocking the codification of abortion rights. Police in Wisconsin are investigating a group claiming credit for the Sunday arson attack on a pro-life organization's office. The group is also warning of future attacks across the country. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. A radical group called Jane's Revenge is reportedly claiming credit for the Sunday attack on pro-life organization Wisconsin Family Action. Police say they're aware of the claim and are investigating its authenticity. According to police, vandals threw a Molotov cocktail inside the building and then started a separate fire when it didn't ignite. Graffiti reading, if abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either, was spray-painted across the building. In a statement to Bellcat reporter Robert Evans, Jane's Revenge reportedly said that the arson was only a warning. The statement went on to say, we are forced to adopt the minimum military requirement for a political struggle. Again, this is only a warning. Next time, the infrastructure of our enslavers will not survive. Wisconsin is the first flashpoint, but we are all over the U.S. and we will issue no further warnings. The group is vowing further attacks if pro-life groups and clinics are not disbanded within the next 30 days. 
several pro-life organizations and pregnancy centers have been targeted since a draft opinion indicating the Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked last week. Grace Coulter, NTD News. And now an update on the southern border. This week, Border Patrol agents in one sector in Texas encountered six large groups illegally crossing into the U.S. Today, House Republicans blamed the Biden administration's border policies, calling them false compassion. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the story. U.S. Customs and Border Protection this week arrested more than 1,000 people in a single Texas county. The arrests were made from six large groups who were illegally crossing the border in the Rio Grande Valley sector, and it's straining their resources. The sector noted the strain in a press release writing, quote, The logistics required to transport and process groups of this size continue to place a strain on manpower and resources. I don't know of any Border Patrol agent that supports catch and release. I don't, I don't know of any of them. I don't know of any agent that supports um, pulling people out of the field, creating artificial gaps that cartels are then able to exploit. Nobody supports that. Judd is the president of the National Border Patrol Council. He visited Capitol Hill today to join House Republicans who are decrying the Biden administration's approach to the southern border surge. We're here to stand up for the forgotten Americans right now who are taking it on the chin, and we're actually standing up for migrants who are being abused in the false name of compassion. The latest statistics from March revealed that CBP reported over 221,000 migrant encounters, the most in any month during the Biden administration. But the Republicans noted there's more than triple that number who completely escaped Border Patrol. The almost 750,000 gotaways because our borders are wide open. There are rapists, there are murderers, there are pedophiles, there are aggravated felons. We know there are very bad people among the 750,000. Did I say they were all bad? No, but that's what they'll say that we're telling people. That's not true. And they say the resource strain is only one of the concerns. Last year alone, the DEA seized enough fentanyl to kill every American. China producing it, cartels running it up through our southern border. So what's the solution? Judd, with on-the-ground knowledge and experience, tells me the first step is policy change. As long as we reward people for violating our laws when they cross the border illegally, if they're released into the United States, they're going to continue to come. So we have to stop that immediately. And with Republicans right now not having the White House and not having a majority in Congress, they're trying to use the American people as the vehicle. They want to clarify more of the true situation at the southern border to the American people with hopes of putting pressure on the Biden administration to implement different border policies. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. The first jury trial for an illegal immigrant's criminal trespassing ended Monday with a guilty verdict. Here are the details. An illegal immigrant was found guilty of criminal trespassing Monday and sentenced to the maximum of one year in prison. Lester Hidalgo Aguilar is the first illegal alien to face trial by jury under Texas Governor Greg Abbott's border security mission, Operation Lone Star. Under this program, the governor enforces a catch-and-jail initiative in which state troopers arrest illegal immigrants trespassing on state or private land. I've deployed 10,000 National Guard and Texas Department of Public Safety officers. Together, they've apprehended more than 200,000 migrants. Illegal immigrants have been found cutting fences and damaging property to cross the U.S.-Mexico border through local farms and lands to avoid getting caught by Border Patrol. These illegal immigrants are also known as gotaways. 
Aguilar was arrested while trespassing Cheryl Gabler Tomlin's family ranch. Tomlin told the Epic Times that she carries a gun all the time now because she often sees other illegal immigrants crossing her ranch. NTD News, Texas. The House approved a resolution Tuesday that will allow congressional staff to form unions if they choose. A critic says this is a direct cost to taxpayers. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. The resolution is adopted. The Office of Compliance and Workplace Rights ruled in 1996 that passage of a resolution was the final step to give congressional workers legal protection to form unions. After 26 years, the House has now taken the final step. So why now? Taxpayer advocate David Williams says this looks like a political stunt. This looks like something that they're doing for the midterm elections to make it look like that uh, they care about lower and middle income people, that they're trying to get the union vote. So I think there are a lot of things going on here that have nothing to do with the administration of Congress. With the He also said this will be a direct cost to taxpayers because members of Congress will have to pay staffers more money and they don't really need a union to do that. It seems like they're being forced to do something, but they can do this already. And that's the frustrating part is that members of Congress say, well, these staffers aren't getting paid enough. Well, that's your own fault as a member of Congress for not paying your staff and not bringing in lower income and middle income people to fill these positions. Some Republicans say unions don't make sense for the unique workplace that is Congress. Research fellow Joel Griffith agrees. The offices are nimble and they can very quickly switch out one staffer for somebody else. With the congressional office, it's very important that Congress people and the chiefs of staff have the type of flexibility. The Democrat sponsor of the resolution, Representative Andy Levin, said giving workers more say about working conditions will lead to lower turnover and make Congress a more effective institution. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Investigative journalists and Republican Congress members joined an off-site congressional hearing on what they called the federal government's suppression of press freedom. The journalists presented testimony and asked lawmakers to address the issue. Here are the details. Advocacy group FreedomWorks held an off-site congressional hearing Tuesday on what they called the federal government's assault on freedom of the press. Award-winning investigative reporter Cheryl Atkinson shared with Congress members the history of the federal government's secret surveillance of Americans over the past two decades. She also shared her experience. Government agents, as we now know, targeted journalists, too, with secret surveillance and subpoenas against then-Fox News reporter James Rosen and 20 Associated Press reporters, and they secretly intruded upon and remotely monitored my computers and devices and those of my family while I worked at CBS News. James O'Keefe from Project Veritas shared his experience of a pre-dawn raid by FBI agents in November 2021. I'm sorry, so what is this regarding? He says a source gave Project Veritas a copy of President Biden's daughter Ashley Biden's diary, and the FBI was investigating its alleged theft. O'Keefe is calling on Congress to help protect journalists. Codify the right of journalists to challenge any subpoena, warrant or order seeking to seize data from a third party where that data includes the journalist information. No more secret seizures of journalist information, period. Congressman Andy Biggs, who chaired the hearing, says Congress is already working on bills to address this matter. Biggs is asking both the Republican leadership and his Democratic colleagues to call for preservation of relevant documents and to hold violators accountable. 
The House Judiciary Committee has marked up two pieces of legislation in an attempt to limit the use of non-disclosure orders and to protect journalists from abusive overreach by the federal government. And while those bills will help to project, protect journalists and news outlets, there's still no excuse for the actions taken of the Biden and Obama, Obama administrations. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. A New York judge says he will lift the contempt of court order against former President Trump if Trump pays a $110,000 fine and meets other conditions. Judge Arthur Angeron had issued the contempt order for Trump's failure to comply with a subpoena by New York State's Attorney General Letitia James. She is conducting a civil probe into Trump's business practices. Angeron gave Trump until May 20th to comply with the other conditions or else the judge could restore the contempt order. The other conditions include submitting affidavits from his personal assistant and the completion of a report from a third-party firm hired to search the Trump Organization's records. Trump said in a May 6th sworn statement that he does not have any relevant documents. West Virginia and Nebraska held their primary elections on Tuesday. Here's a look at who's moving on to November's general election. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the results. I also want to thank President Donald Trump for his endorsement. Trump endorsed Representative Alex Mooney won West Virginia's 2nd Congressional District Republican primary on Tuesday. Mooney defeated Representative David McKinley with just over 50% of the vote to McKinley's 40%, according to a projection from Decision Desk HQ Tuesday night. The incumbent congressmen had to face each other after West Virginia lost one of its congressional districts in a 2020 reapportionment. Trump called Mooney a proud America first conservative for voting against President Biden's Build Back Better bill and against the creation of a bipartisan January 6th commission. The voters of West Virginia spoke loud and clear tonight. They, they rejected, they rejected President Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi's far-left socialist agenda that's destroying our great nation. In his victory speech, Mooney called West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin arrogant for telling Republicans how to vote, referring to Manchin's endorsement of McKinley. He must see me as a threat because he keeps trying to interfere in my campaigns. The real threat to Manchin and elitists like him are the conservative voters of West Virginia. Barry Wendell beat Angela Dwyer in the Democratic primary for West Virginia's 2nd District. And in the 1st District, incumbent Representative Carol Miller won the Republican primary and Eugene Watson took the Democratic primary. The congressional candidates will face off in November's general election. In Nebraska, Republican State Senator Mike Flood won the 1st Congressional District Republican primary on Tuesday. Flood was appointed to represent the GOP in a special election to replace Republican Jeff Fortenberry, who resigned after being found guilty of three felonies in March. Fortenberry's term runs through January 2023. If Flood loses the special election in June, he will still be on November's general election ballot. And in Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District Republican primary, Representative Don Bacon routed Steve Keel with over 80% of the vote. Trump encouraged supporters at a recent rally to vote against Bacon because he voted for President Biden's Build Back Better infrastructure bill and his past criticism around January 6th. In Nebraska's Republican primary election for governor, Trump endorsed Charles Herbster, who lost to Jim Pillen. Results of the primaries are seen by some as a measure of Trump's influence over the Republican Party ahead of a possible 2024 presidential run. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Up next, two rappers are hit with racketeering charges, along with dozens of other people. They allegedly promoted a gang, as well as murder and violence, in their songs. 
and a former NFL kicker's lawsuit against his prior team. He alleges a coach kicked him on the field. That and more coming up on NTD News. When you look at TV networks in America, and fight it out culture prevails on news and commentary programs. As a Canadian, I'm fascinated with America, and I wanted to offer American thought leaders an opportunity to share their thoughts in a deep dive format where we can explore their ideas together. And so American Thought Leaders was born. The world's most brilliant thinkers believed that open discourse was the key to greatness. However, all around the world, we see that discourse is being stifled and political agendas have subverted media. The Epic Times launched its Global Thought Leaders program to bring back this great tradition of free thought. As the host of American Thought Leaders, every week I interview some of the most intriguing minds on the most pressing issues of our time. Be sure to check out our new episodes every week. Gunna is in a jail in Atlanta because of a gang-related charge. That's after he was indicted with fellow rapper Young Thug and more than two dozen other people. Here are the details. An indictment filed Monday accuses Gunna, whose real name is Sergio Kitchens, of violating Georgia's anti-racketeering law. It also alleges that Young Thug, whose given name is Jeffrey Lamar Williams, co-founded a violent street gang that committed murders, shootings and carjackings over roughly a decade. Williams allegedly promoted the gang's activities in songs and on social media. The 88-page indictment, filed in Fulton County, Georgia, quotes lyrics from multiple music videos as evidence and accuses alleged gang members of committing violent crimes to collect money for the gang, promote its reputation, and enhance its power and territory. Fulton County's district attorney said that in the near future, they'll be bringing more indictments against top-level gang members. Young Thug's lawyer, Brian Steele, told news outlets that Mr. Williams committed no crime whatsoever and he would fight till his last drop of blood to clear him. In New York City, a criminal was freed ahead of a sentencing date connected to a gun charge. Last night, he got into a shootout with police officers. New York City Mayor Eric Adams condemned soft-on-crime laws at a press conference after the shooting. NTD's Arian Pazdar has the details. Mayor Adams criticized what he calls the anti-police mentality some New Yorkers have. He says he's tired of people complaining about officers doing their job. Who the hell will protect the innocent New Yorkers in this city? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. It is time for us to stop spending our energy protecting people who are committing crimes and violence. The number of shootings that we are responding to every night is despicable. The shooting happened when two officers approached a suspect who first ran away, but soon after turned around and opened fire. One of the officers was shot in the arm. He was released from the hospital a few hours after the shooting and is expected to make a full recovery. The suspect was fatally struck in the head by one of the officers. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. Baby formula is running seriously low. 
Abbott Laboratories said it could restart baby formula production in Michigan within two weeks. It's welcome news as a major recall has left shelves bare. Several big retailers, including CVS, Walgreens and Target, are limiting purchases around the country. About 40 percent of baby formula products were out of stock last month, according to one data firm. Abbott is a top supplier of baby formula. In February, it recalled some baby formula made at its Michigan plant after complaints of bacterial infections in infants who consumed the products. But no formula that has been distributed has tested positive for bacteria, according to the company. Now, rent inflation. It's apparently never been more costly to rent in many parts of the country, including New York City. The city that never sleeps has some renters out on their feet. NTD's Phil Zoe reports. Renters in New York are facing record prices. Uh, they're ridiculous. <laughs> Especially in Manhattan, where asking rents are averaging $3,700 in the first quarter of this year. That's a whopping $1,000 increase from the year before. Jared moved to Manhattan when he found a sweet deal during the pandemic. I moved from Brooklyn to the Upper West Side during COVID, took a COVID deal. But now he's expecting to move out once his lease is up. That lasted one year. My rent went up 15%. And I tried to negotiate, didn't, didn't work. But the rent increases can get even worse. The building I'm living in, I've heard that costs have gone up about 30%. Rent's gone up about 30%. Stephanie just moved to the city. She's paying around $3,500 for a luxury apartment in downtown Manhattan. A lot of times the apartments were rented, um, sometimes without showings at all. There were multiple offers on rentals. Demand is expected to go even higher because there aren't that many apartments available. There just isn't much supply. Vacancy is uh, below 2%. It's been that way all year, which is a really tight uh, low number. Housing expert Jonathan Miller expects the high prices to continue for a while. Phil Zoe, NTD News. Inflation is decreasing, but likely not enough for you to notice the difference at the cash register. That's according to a new consumer price report released Wednesday, which showed some mixed messaging when it comes to inflation. While the peak may be behind us, Americans are still grappling with high prices at the pump and supermarkets. Gloria Pazmino explains this report. A bit of a reprieve, at least for now. The U.S. inflation rate declined for the first time since August. And while prices still increased, it's happening at a slower pace than in previous months. I'm a little hesitant to call it good news because we don't know, of course, where it's going to go in the next few months. According to new Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers released Wednesday, the consumer price index was up 8.3% in the 12 months ended in April, a decrease from the 8.5% recorded in March, which marked the highest inflation level in more than 40 years. The numbers suggest the inflation peak could be behind us, but major global events continue to shake up the economy. That means Americans may not feel an improvement in their wallets just yet. Housing, food and plane tickets saw some of the steepest price increases. Gas prices are higher today than they were a few weeks ago. Families are paying over $150 in many cases to fill their vehicle and they're angry about it. America is fighting on two fronts. At home, it's inflation and rising prices. The pressures that have kept inflation rising for months are still strong, a problem for American households already strapped for cash. Some of America's top companies are already pausing hiring or flat out laying off staff. Do they know something we don't? 
Is a recession indeed on the way? NTD's Faye Quarter reports. Large companies are having large layoffs and hiring freezes. Wells Fargo, America's third largest bank, is laying off employees nationwide. Meta, formerly Facebook, is reducing hiring for mid-level and senior roles. Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi says the app will start treating hiring as a privilege. Robinhood, back in April, said it was kicking out 9% of its employees, blaming duplicate job functions. Better.com, whose CEO is well known for his mass Zoom layoff, laid off 30 3% of its staff, around 3,000 people. Carvana, which sells used cars, laid off 12% of its people. So what they don't want to do is get caught in an overhire position. George Randall is a partner at Talent War Group. Randall says companies are being cautious in the face of uncertainty. While hiring may get cut back a little bit, there's still an enormous appetite for top talent on the market. The layoffs and hiring freezes are happening as experts are predicting a recession amid the war in Ukraine and high inflation. <laughs> think it'll be a mild recession uh, and it'll be short-lived. Harley Lipman is the founder of Genesis 10, an IT talent recruitment firm. Lipman says companies don't necessarily lay off people because profits are down. There are many other reasons. One could be automation. It's just they're adjusting perhaps supply and demand to be another reason. So we shouldn't panic or worry about that. In a stuttering job market, it's a good idea not to be fired. To do this, experts say it's important to be a top talent or hard to replace in another way. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. First, in the NBA, the Memphis Grizzlies face elimination tonight down 3-1 against the visiting Golden State Warriors, but will still be without emerging star John Morant. The 22-year-old has averaged 38 points a game in the series, but is listed as doubtful for the rest of the round with a bone bruise in his knee. Despite his absence in Game 4, the Grizzlies led until the final minute as Golden State rallied for the win. In the early matchup tonight, Boston hosts Milwaukee in a critical Game 5 as the series is tied up at two games apiece. The Celtics regained home court advantage with a gritty win in Game 4. Celtics forward Al Horford was instrumental in the victory, scoring 30 points on just 14 shots, including a momentum-changing dunk over Giannis Adetokounmpo in the fourth quarter. Boston went on to score 43 points in that final quarter to pull out the win and even the series. In the NHL, the New York Rangers have their backs against the wall tonight, facing a 3-1 deficit against Pittsburgh. The team will be sticking with goalie Igor Shesterkin, though, despite his being pulled the last two games. A finalist for the Vezina Trophy, Shesterkin, allowed 10 goals on 45 shots in Games 3 and 4, both wins by the Penguins. Two other Game 5s are on tap tonight as Florida hosts Washington and Dallas is at Calgary in series that are both tied at two games apiece. In baseball news, Tampa Bay was no hit last night by the Los Angeles Angels, but not from the starting pitcher you'd expect. Rookie pitcher Reed Detmers overshadowed his MVP teammate Shohei Otani while becoming the youngest pitcher to throw no hitter since 2006 and just the 25th rookie ever to do so. The 22-year-old was making just his 11th career start when he held the Rays to one walk, one reach space on an error, and no hits over nine innings in a 12-0 win. Detmers struck out just two batters and had one close call in the seventh inning on a ball hit to first that bounced off first baseman Jared Walsh's glove and allowed the speedy Brett Phillips to reach safely. The play was ruled an error, though, and the no-hitter continued. 
The first place Angels continue their series tonight against the Rays. In the NFL, former Jacksonville Jaguars kicker Josh Lambeau is suing the Jaguars, seeking more than $3.5 million in salary and damages. His suit alleges that former head coach Urban Meyer created a hostile work environment and the team did nothing to stop it. Lambeau alleges Meyer kicked him one time while stretching before practice during the preseason while telling him to make his kicks. Lambeau says his performance suffered as a result of Meyer kicking him and verbally abusing him. Lambeau was released by the team on October 19. Jacksonville fired Meyer on December 15, the day after the Tampa Bay Times reported that Meyer kicked Lambeau a few months earlier. Meyer previously denied the kicking incident as Lambeau described it. That's all for sports today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, a graduate student in Southern California has entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity after allegedly trying to grab a police officer's peace officer's gun. The officer was shot in the leg. And another California city is planning to ban ghost guns. The ordinance passed city council unanimously and will go into effect this summer. More when we return here on NTD News. House of Representatives passed a $40 billion package for Ukraine last night. All Democrats and around 70% of Republicans voted in favor. But some members of the GOP are raising questions about the aid and the repercussions it could have on Americans. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. The House on Tuesday night approved an additional $40 billion military and humanitarian aid package for Ukraine. This is just weeks after lawmakers approved $13.6 billion in emergency aid for the war effort. Combined, this totals roughly $53 billion over the last two months. Not only does this go beyond what President Biden requested, it's also poised to amount to the largest foreign aid package to pass through Congress in two decades. While the aid was passed with few questions or objections, a few Republican members of Congress voiced opposition. $54 million in COVID spending in Ukraine, but there's no formula for American babies and mothers. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene asked Congress why it's sending this money to Ukraine, yet failing to find solutions to crises at home, such as the border crisis, supply chain issues, and skyrocketing inflation. Representative Matt Gates warned about where all this money and military aid may be heading. Do we have amnesia in this house? Is memory loss a consequence of the gerontocracy of Congress? Just a year ago, we lost a war against goat herders waving rifles. Now we're rushing to fight a nation that possesses 6,000 nuclear warheads? Representatives now recklessly assert that we are at war? Congressman Moulton said last week, quote, we're not just at war to support the Ukrainians, we're fundamentally at war, although somewhat through a proxy, with Russia. Gates says even just questioning the U.S.'s actions in Ukraine is taboo. So you're a supporter of Putin if you think it's a bad idea to give the White House blanket permission to send, quote, any weapon, weapon system, munition, aircraft, vessel, boat, or other implement of war to Ukraine while surrendering our rights to repayment. Both Gates and Green questioned the integrity behind the support for Ukraine. Stop 
funding, regime change, and money laundering scams. The American people do not support paying for constant U.S. involvement in foreign affairs while our own government fails our own country. Gates likewise says he suspects the actual objective of some of his fellow congressmen is a regime change in Russia. And to achieve this goal, they're willing to send billions to Kyiv that will line the pockets of corrupt officials just like we did in Afghanistan. We are sleepwalking into a war and the American people are left in the dark. Other members of Congress, meanwhile, argue that aid is needed to support the people of Ukraine. They also say helping Ukraine is in America's interest because it's important to stop Russian President Vladimir Putin from invading European allies and expanding his power. Grace Coulter, NTD News. A Southern California graduate student has pleaded insanity after being accused of trying to grab a police peace officer's gun. This played out after the officer came to the student's aid. The officer ended up being shot in the leg. NTD's Daniel Hall has the story. On Tuesday, 25-year-old Du Yu Hao entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity after allegedly being involved in the shooting of a highway patrol officer in April. Du, a Chinese graduate student at the University of California, San Diego, remains in custody without bail. Along with attempted murder, Du is charged with felony counts of assault on a peace officer with a semi-automatic firearm and removing and taking a firearm from an officer. One of Du's attorneys said the insanity plea was a difficult decision to make. The next steps will involve having Du examined by doctors. According to Shouse California Law Group, defense lawyers would need to prove that Du was legally insane when he committed the crime. If acquitted, the crime will not go on his criminal record and he would be put in a state mental hospital instead of prison. The shooting occurred on the evening of April 27th when Du crashed his vehicle on eastbound Interstate 8 in Southern California's Mission Valley. Highway Patrol Officer Tony Pacheco arrived at the scene. CHP spokesperson Jake Sanchez said while Pacheco spoke with Du, he allegedly attacked the officer without warning, lunging for his service gun and trying to take control of it. That's when Officer Pacheco was shot in the thigh. According to a GoFundMe page for Pacheco and his family, he was initially released from the hospital but then later readmitted due to serious complications from the gunshot wound. Pacheco has two young children and a third on the way. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. A Bay Area City Council approved an ordinance on Tuesday to ban ghost guns. One official pointed out the federal ordinances don't ban the possession of such weapons. NTD's Eileen Ang reports. That ocean of guns that's already out there, um, the, the, the federal ordinance alone doesn't enable us to be able to say, hey, you can't possess that, which is what we want our police officers to be able to say. The San Jose City Council unanimously approved an ordinance banning ghost guns, which are privately made firearms that are hard to track. It would prohibit the possession, manufacturing, sale, and distribution of unserialized firearms within San Jose. The move aims to reduce gun violence after the mass shooting at a transit agency last May that killed 10 people. The ordinance will go into effect June 16th. The public will have 120 days to comply. And coming up, one American woman's horror story of being trapped in travel limbo. She finally makes it back home after her flight out of China was canceled nearly 10 times.
annual report. It's about getting answers, cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. After more than two months in limbo, one American finally waves goodbye to China's COVID-19 lockdown. She made it back home after her flight out of China got cancelled nearly 10 times. She expressed concerns that she'd be trapped forever in China. Here are the details. I'm on the final leg of my journey here and I just wanted to say a quick goodbye to everyone in China. There's a lot of really lovely people here. Um, and I hope that you guys survive these lockdowns with as little pain as possible. For the last 65 days, American Laura Hudson has been on a mission to leave China. She quit her teaching job in China's northeastern city of Chongqing on March 8 for reasons unrelated to the global health crisis. But the city announced a lockdown three days later. That's when the city shut down all public transportation, including its airport, and ordered its 9 million residents to stay home. This kept Hudson confined to her apartment for most of March and April without a functioning hot water heater. She spent most of her time writing a book, figuring out how to buy food and working out ways to get a flight out of China. Just trying to figure out how to, how to move so that maybe I can leave sometime before I die. After Changchun lifted its lockdown and a number of canceled plane tickets, Hudson flew out of Changchun on Wednesday morning to Beijing. There, she caught another plane that afternoon, a flight that will eventually bring her to Los Angeles. Reflecting on what it took to leave and how many tickets were canceled before she boarded her flight, she said, I counted it up and it's like roughly, you know, eight or nine tickets altogether. I don't think I will leave the United States for quite a long time after I get back, to be honest. NTD News, New York. The head of the World Health Organization is calling out Beijing's zero COVID-19 policy, describing it as unsustainable. He's pushing China to shift its course on virus handling. But the comments have stirred both anger and what looks like a new wave of censorship from Beijing. Let's take a look. The head of the World Health Organization, or WHO, appears to be getting censored in China. That's after he made comments questioning the country's zero COVID-19 policy. Uh, when we talk about the zero um, COVID strategy, uh, we don't think that it's sustainable considering the behavior of the virus now and what we anticipate uh, in the future. Tedros made the comments during a media briefing on Tuesday. They mark a rare case of division between the WHO and Chinese policies. And China's two largest social media platforms, Weibo and WeChat, seem to be censoring them. A Weibo hashtag featuring Tedros's name has also been censored, along with images of his face. Social media reports say a related article has been blocked on WeChat and unable to be shared. Beijing responded to the WHO during a news briefing the following day. Officials called Tedros's comments irresponsible. Beijing's disagreement with the WHO comes with curious timing. Days before Tedros made his statement, Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping promised to uphold the policy. He added Beijing would, quote, resolutely struggle against disapproval of it. 
More than 300 million people in China are under partial or total lockdown. Confined to their homes, many are only allowed to leave the house in order to get tested for the infection. In a number of areas, mass rounds of virus testing are being done on a daily basis. Shanghai is already entering the seventh week under lockdown. Beijing is also tightening its rules, prompting concern from residents that Beijing could be headed in the same direction as Shanghai. And a German newspaper reports that a COVID expert who wrote key parts of a COVID strategy paper for the German government is on Beijing's payroll. Here's more. The paper entitled How We Get COVID-19 Under Control was written for the then Interior Minister in March 2020 and significantly influenced the COVID measures in Germany. It advocated for massive government intervention, including quarantine camps for infected people and psychological operations to instill fear in children. One of its authors, Otto Kobel, is a linguist at a university in Switzerland. He's an avowed fan of dictator Mao and was a language teacher in China. Kobo told the paper Die Welt he still believes that zero COVID is a good strategy for China and that he gets paid by the Chinese regime to help with what he called their communication problems. The German government official who hired Kobo said he didn't know about the connection. Meanwhile, EU authorities say face masks will not have to be worn in airports and on flights in member countries from the 16th of May. The European Union Aviation Safety Agency and the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control say this is in alignment with the changing requirements across the bloc. France, Italy and other European countries have been relaxing or ending their measures to prevent the spread of COVID. But rules for wearing masks are expected to vary after the mandatory requirement is lifted as individual airlines can still impose them. Ukraine said a counteroffensive has pushed Russian invaders out of towns and villages near Kharkiv. Part of an operation Kyiv hopes could change the course of the war. Here's more. Ukrainian soldiers inspected the wreckage of a Russian tank in the village of Rubizhne, recently recaptured from the invaders. Kiev said on Tuesday its forces had successfully pushed Russian troops out of several towns near the city of Kharkiv, part of a counter-offensive that Ukraine hopes could change the course of the war. One soldier here boasted his team could keep delivering these sorts of results. The weapons are helping us a lot, the anti-tank ones. I wish the state would supply us with them more frequently. We use the weapons exclusively for specific targets. As you can see, we have results. If there are weapons, we will have more results. Kiev's counteroffensive here could be consequential. Ukrainian forces are moving into striking distance of the supply lines, supporting Russia's main attack force in where Moscow has focused on encircling and capturing the Donbas region. Ukrainian forces have so far mostly held out. Despite these setbacks, Russian President Vladimir Putin has shown no signs of calling off or limiting what he's termed a special military operation. Demonstrating Moscow's reach, Russian missiles destroyed a shopping center and depot in the port city of Odessa. The Ukrainian military said one person was killed and five were injured. In Mariupol, Russian forces again pummeled the Azovstal steelworks on Tuesday, trying to capture the last bastion of Ukrainian resistance in the ruined city. Scores of civilians have been evacuated from the steelworks in recent days, but an aide to Mariupol's mayor said at least a hundred still remained inside. Ukraine says tens of thousands of people have died under two months of Russian siege and bombardment. 
Coming up, the largest white diamond to ever go to auction was sold today. How much did it fetch? And millions of tulips in full bloom in one Michigan town, with locals and visitors alike celebrating the Dutch culture in a week-long celebration. We take you there. That and more coming up on NTD News. A 228-carat white diamond called The Rock was sold for nearly $22 million at an auction in Geneva today. It's the largest ever seen throughout auction market history. Let's take a look. Ladies and gentlemen, The Rock, the largest white diamond ever to be offered for sale at auction at 228 carats. The white gemstone was mined and polished in South Africa over two decades ago. The sale was started at $14 million. With the auction house commission, the successful bidder bought the stone for a total of $21.8 million. Another remarkable diamond was also sold during the auction, the Red Cross. It's a yellow, cushion-shaped diamond that weighs a whopping 205 carats. The historically important gem sold for $14.3 million. Part of the proceeds from the sale of the Red Cross diamond will go to the International Red Cross. Millions of tulips are in full bloom in Holland, Michigan. This week, the city is celebrating the 93rd year of the Tulip Time Festival. The festival, which celebrates Netherlands' national flower, the tulip, has evolved into a celebration of Dutch cultures. Here's the story. A few hundred Dutch dancers welcomed visitors to Holland, Michigan this week as part of its annual Tulip Time Festival celebration. The first Dutch immigrants settled in Holland, Michigan 175 years ago in 1847, and their descendants have preserved many of the traditional Dutch cultures for generations. 24-year-old Molly Blue performed the traditional Dutch dance in a Dutch costume. Um, this was actually my mom's that she Dutch danced in when she was in high school. So they can't have any zippers, they all have to have hooks and buttons. Dutch dancers also wear traditional wooden shoes, but the shoes are stiff. Now I'm wearing eight pairs of socks. You want the cushion from all of the socks so that your feet don't hurt while you're dancing. The Dutch invented de clomp, wooden shoes, or the clog, in the 13th century to replace leather shoes. Located by the North Sea with one-third of its land below sea level, the Netherlands has a damp climate, not conducive to leather. Ken Larman, a shoe carver, explains the origin of wooden shoes. Leather was very hard to get and did not, does not hold up well in that climate. And they're having trouble with health issues with their feet. So they invented with the wooden shoe to keep their feet dry and, and they last longer than leather would in that area. The people of Holland also passed down another tradition, making Delftware, famous Dutch pottery, by using the raw materials and processing techniques from Delft, Netherlands. Delft was a trade center in the 1600s. Because the China, the route for all the items would go past the Netherlands, so that's where they kind of got the blue and white. The Delft design has a few specific elements, including a type of flower and windmills. Herod says Holland's Delft factory is the only one in North America. Beyond the Dutch culture, the city's picturesque windmills and blooming tulips are a feast for the eyes. 
Jim Kasberg from Ohio is having a great time with friends. Oh, we're enjoying it tremendously. We drove here purposely to see this beautiful area and everything it has to offer. For the first time since the pandemic, this year's Tulip Time Festival is fully open and will last until this Sunday, May 15th. Reporting by NTD's Angela Moy. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.